I am not a cook. I can make spaghetti. Uh, I can make waffles and not the ego kind. Uh, I can make frozen pizza uh, and anything that's three minutes on the microwave. I can do that. Aside from that, not a whole lot else. And I also don't have a, a very um, sophisticated or overly adventurous palate. I can pretty plain, enjoy pretty plain things. But having said all that, I really enjoy watching Iron Chef and all these cooking shows, right? And it just boggles my mind. You, you give them a couple items, right? They say, we're going to give you a meat or a vegetable, or, and they're going to give you some secret ingredient. And usually it's something like marshmallow cream. <laughs> Make something out of that. And I'm always astonished how these guys can, in 30 minutes or an hour, they can, they can think of these combinations of flavors and spices and textures and sweet and savory and crunchy and smooth. And, and then the dishes they prepare, they go to the judges. And the judges, well, they can cook. And they have sophisticated palates. And so you watch their faces. And sometimes you see they'll take a bite. And you can see this, oh, that is so good, right? And other times you see them take a bite. And you can see them searching for a way to get rid of the bite that's in their mouth, <laughs> you know. And, and they just, it just, it's yuck. It's just not very good. And the difference is not the ingredients individually. It's what happens when they're combined in certain proportions that makes it taste a certain way. Now, it's not just meals where, where the right combination is crucial. Either it's great or awful. Uh, you know, think about the gas in your car. If you have, if you have, you go get your unleaded gas, but if you have a diesel engine, you put unleaded gas in a diesel engine, probably not, or vice versa, and probably not going to go well in the long run for your automobile. Baseball teams are that time of year where they're making trades and trying to put together just the right roster to make a late season push. Businesses uh, or staff in any company, they'll, they'll consider the chemistry of personalities and competencies that go together to help that business accomplish its business plan. So combining things in the right way to move forward. When Jesus put together the church and set the church on mission, it wasn't just tossed together with kind of what was hanging around, with what was left. He had a very specific combination of, of ingredients. And just after the resurrection, he gathered with his disciples in the upper room. And, and this, is, this is what happened in that moment from Luke 24. It says this, that he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, if you go back through those, what you begin to see is he begins by saying, I want to establish that, that I'm going to build this thing on gospel truth. I want you to understand the scriptures. But then there is this missional impulse. I want you to go proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations. I want you to be my witnesses. This is Luke's version of the Great Commission. And then he says, you need Holy Spirit power. Wait till you're clothed with power from on high. So you got these three ingredients. But there's one more tucked in here. It's the one that's kind of hidden. But remember, he's talking to a group. And all the yous in here are all plural. So the fourth big ingredient here is a faith family. It's all pulled together. So all these things go together. 
gospel truth, missional impulse, Holy Spirit power, a faith family, all are crucial. In the same way you can't have a BLT without the BDL on the T, you can't really have a church on mission without all these things all put together. Now, all year long, we've been examining the life of Jesus' family, the church. We said life in, in the faith family is better Together And this month, we've been focusing on the sort of qualities or atmosphere that marks the people that are on this mission of living hopeful and, and being helpful. So, so if gospel and mission impulse and Holy Spirit power and the faith family are the main ingredients, well, I want you to think of these qualities we've been talking about this month as the spices that flavor our life together. So we've talked about affection. That we're, we want to have a passionate love for each other that will deal with the things even when they're messy and they're hard. Last week we talked about honor. That we want to honor one another as those who've been created by God, saved by Jesus, those who've been fruitful and faithful to him. And this morning we want to talk about the, the, uh, the idea of humility. Humility. Now, humility is a noble virtue. It's one that, that's uh, admired in society. And most faith traditions will say you need to pursue humility. But if we're honest, our tendency sometimes, when we begin to talk in church, we're going to talk about humility. Our tendency, sometimes we want to kind of duck, right? Because I've had a lot of messages about humility where somebody's kind of wound up with a guilt stick and just smacked everybody and said, just walk away feeling shame for how humble you're not. Well, I hope we won't do that this morning. I think there's another way to get at this, to step back and look at it. And so we're going to look at this this morning in Romans chapter 12. You have your copy of the Bible. Would you turn there to Romans chapter 12? You don't have a Bible with you? There's a black heart down one in front of you. We'd love for you to follow along with us. Just remember, Paul's written this letter to this church, small body believers. They're struggling to gain stability in the face of persecution. They're in a transition season, but they're still a church on mission. Now, Paul's never met these guys, but he's writing to them to encourage them in their faithfulness, but also to raise money and to have them help him take the gospel even further west on into Europe. Now, now the way he writes this, the first 11 chapters, he says, I want to get the message right. So the first 11 chapters just kind of leans into what the gospel is. Chapter 12 changes tone completely. Now I want you to get the life right. This is what it looks like for a group of people who are going to live out this gospel. This is what it looks like. He says it looks like a life of worship. He says that. He says it looks like people who are transformed, not conformed to the world, but transformed. And then he gives 22 imperatives. One after the do this, do this, do this, do this. And he's describing them what this life looks like. So would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Mae Hutchins is going to come and, and read the word for us. Where'd she go? Where is she? She's here somewhere, I hope. There she is. She's coming. She's coming. And we're going to read Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 16. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. you Maybe seated. Thank you, May. So you hear the call to humility, right? Don't be haughty. Don't be wise in your own eyes. But I want to take a step back first and kind of follow the flow of thought as it relates to our mission together. The first thing I want you to see is this: is that living hopeful and helpful requires a harmony of life and mission. Now he says, live in harmony with one another. Just pursue this unity in. Diversity. Now, harmony happens when a, 
when multiple things operate together in a complementary way. We've already talked about that in terms of how it works in a recipe, but we also hear it in music. We can know when, when the notes are right and when they don't clash a little bit, we can kind of hear that. Uh, we feel it in relationships. When, when there's harmony in relationships, there's an easy conversation. You have shared interests together. Or even if there's an idea that's being presented or, or a position, this something makes sense. It's logical. It flows. It's consistent. It's affirmed. And, and, and you just kind of sense all those pieces go, to, go together. So, so when Paul urges the church to live in harmony, our first thought is of relationships between the members. And he even looks at that down in verse 18. He says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now that reflects Jesus' heart, doesn't it? Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the children of God. This is, this is a family trait of God. God's heart is for reconciliation, to put broken things back together. It's the very heart of, of the gospel message, is to put what's broken back together again. Now, in the Living Hope family, we, we put a, a high value on peacemaking. In our Hope Center for Biblical Counseling, we even have a whole team of people who have been trained to work with relationships that are kind of off the rails and to bring peacemaking and reconciliation back together there. So, so we know we're going to disappoint each other. We know we're going to mess it up. We know we're going to hurt each other. We get that because it's just the way it is. But we don't want to leave those relationships broken and messed up and angry and upset and with distance that is there. That's not helpful to us. So we want to trust that the Lord will help us to uh, pursue grace together, to forgive one another, to reconcile those relationships, put that back together. This is what he has for us. In other words, we can't do our mission well if we're fussing with each other <laughs> within the body itself. It just doesn't work. It leaves kind of a sour taste to everything that we do. Early in, in our ministry, we've been married a couple of years or so in our first church, Paul and I were invited to lunch by a lady named Delcia Happ and, and her husband Frank. Now, now Delcia was, was funny. Delcia was about, she was about four foot two, this way and this way. A little round butterball of a woman, just full of joy, loved Jesus and loved to serve. So she invited us over for, for lunch and we had the perfect Sunday lunch. We had roast potatoes and carrots. We had fresh from the garden green beans and freshly baked rolls and, and sweet tea. And it was just so good. And on the little buffet right next to where we were eating, she'd already laid out our dessert. It was strawberry pie. And it was there on her very best china. And you could see, you could see how the flaky crust, that kind of pinkish red filling on the inside, on top, just this dollop of, of fresh whipped cream. We just couldn't wait. So we enjoyed the meal conversation, and, and we get that, and then she brings our pie and hands it to us, right? And we sit down, and I take my fork, I get a great big bite of that strawberry pie, I stick it in my mouth, only it wasn't strawberry. It was rhubarb. Now, some of y'all have had rhubarb before, right? So, you know, I couldn't talk for a few minutes because my lips were like that from the tartness of it, right? It kind of messed things up. You know, when you have an expectation of one thing and you get something else all together, it left a ton of sour taste. Now, conflict can do that. In a church, when we're expecting to all be sweet, so we let that conflict go, it leaves a sour taste. But reconciliation 
puts things back together again. So we want to have harmony in our relationships with one another. But not only that, we need harmony in regard to our mission itself. That all of us are, are of one mind, committed to the same priorities, moving in the same direction, contributing gifts and resources and time and energy to accomplish the same thing. Now, let's remember how Jesus was building his church on mission. He said, there's gospel truth, there's doctrines, there's scriptures to know. So we have established here our articles of faith. We are a Bible-based people. We're a, we're a biblically-driven congregation. So you're going to very rarely hear us say anything that we don't say, what's the Bible say about that? We're going to look at that and see. And then there's the missional impulse, this call to make disciples and be witnesses to Jesus. Now, we've put that together in several statements that you hear on a pretty regular basis that we have a goal to reach 1% of the unreached in our community. This morning, 84-some percent, 84 to 86% of the people in our general area aren't attending anybody's church anywhere, so we can assume that they don't have a defining faith relationship with Jesus Christ. Our vision is that they would join us as a family of disciples with relationships sent to make disciples of Jesus. So we're, we're increasingly expanding this, this family. How are we going to do that? By our mission, we're going to lead more people to anchor their life and hope in Jesus. We're going to tell them about Jesus and about his saving power and invite them to, to choose to anchor their life and hope in Christ. And the goal, this tragedy here, is not to have folks just show up on Sunday morning to do the Sunday morning deal. The goal here is helping one another faithfully, joyfully live out the rhythms of the disciples' pathway, a life marked by worship, connection as family, serving the kingdom, equipping and learning and, and multiplying as we live as missionaries where we live, work, learn, and play. And all of that we sum up in this phrase of living hopeful and being helpful. So that's the missional impulse. So we have, we have gospel truth, we have missional impulse. We're gonna need the Holy Spirit's power to do that. We're a faith family that's gonna take all of us to do it together. Now, now here's the thing I want you to see. Everything that we do at Living Hope is related to one of those aspects of our ministry. Everything we plan, everything we spend, every dollar we budget, the way we staff, the way we calendar, the way we equip, the way we lead, the way we affirm, the way we develop, the way we cheer, all those things are focused on those, that goal, vision, mission, strategy, that direction. It's all going in the same way. Now, why is that important? Because there's phenomenal power when you coordinate a bunch of things together and there's synergy when you move in the same direction. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew? He said, you are the light of the world. You're the light of the world. Now, now light is a powerful force. You came in, you got the fluorescent lights in our hallway. It's kind of a light wash, right? Kind of even a nice wash over things. But then you come in here in a stage and there's spotlights that are, that are much more powerful. But if we, if we take those same spots that you're seeing now and we flip them toward you, right, and they come toward your direction, now instinctively that light's really bright in your eyes and you want to squint a little bit where that is. We take that exact same light and we tighten it even more. It's going to eventually move into a laser. And that laser can be used for microsurgery on some part of a body to bring healing. And if you tighten it even further, that laser can cut through steel, have incredible power because there's phenomenal power when you coordinate everything in the same direction. Now think about this. If we take all the spiritual power 
in the lives of all the disciples in this place that, that have been given to the collection of God's people here, and we coordinate all that God has given us and our giftedness and our power in the same direction toward the same goal, the same vision, the same mission, the same strategy, then what happens? What happens to lostness and brokenness and injustice and racism and hatred and, and all the hurts that we see? What happens is as that is concentrated, then darkness gets pushed back and light becomes more and more powerful. Because we're all doing it together, we're all moving in that exact same direction. Listen, if mustard seed faith, Jesus said, moves a mountain, what would happen if all of us take all of our faith and confidence in God and pray and put it in the exact same direction? I'm going to tell you what happens. What happens is you unleash this world-shaking, life-transforming, eternal destiny-shaping power in the lives of people and in families and in communities, and all of you see here is this. Our harmony matters. Our harmony as a family, not only relationally with one another, but also on our mission. We're all pulling in the same direction. That matters because living hopeful and helpful requires harmony of life and mission. And that harmony requires a humility in character and relationships a humility in character and relationship. Now back in Romans 12, 16, look how quickly Paul shifts from, from, uh, from harmony and he pivots to humility and he gets it by these dual warnings about pride. He says, don't be haughty, don't be wise in your own eyes. He basically says, avoid pride. Now, why? Now, now let's, let's be careful here and let's take the Bible as the Bible presents it, we, we don't want to psychologize everything. When we talk about pride here, we're not talking about something that's a component of strong self-esteem. We're not talking about bragging about your prowess in some area or accomplishment. We're not even talking about brash people, have a personality in that way. It could be just as easily be somebody who's relatively quiet. Biblically, what is pride? Pride is a disposition of the heart that makes everything about me. And we can trace that all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember, Adam and Eve created, God puts them in paradise. It's all yours except for this one tree in the middle of the garden. Just leave that alone. And they're fine with that. They take that until the serpent comes slithering along and here's what they come back and they say. Oh yeah, we heard that. We know this wonderful thing. God has been so good to give us this paradise and everything we have. And we know all about the boundaries around the tree. But that fruit looks so good and like it would be so good to taste. And the serpent said if we eat that, we have access to some stuff that would really be good for us. And they took of the fruit and they ate. And what we call that is sin. And sin is exactly how it is spelled. Sin puts I in the middle of life. Sin puts me at the center of the solar system of everything else, my relationships, situations, values. It's self-promotion, self-protection, self-pleasing, self-ruling, self-determining, and it is the default setting for every single human soul. Every single one of us here needs to confess, I am a proud person, because it's just how we're wired. It's what we wrestle against. And if you wouldn't stand with me and say, I'm a proud person, you'll lie about other stuff too. <laughs> it's true of all of us. It defines what we constantly are dealing with along the way. Now, here's what pride does. 
pride minimizes God and elevates self. It is an obsession with self that's the root of all other sins. Because here's what pride wants to do. Pride wants to make me look good. I want to make me look good. And I will lie. I'll, I'll use, I'll put on masks to hide my real messed up self. I'll even use spiritual stuff to try to make myself look better in front of you. And it's not a healthy, healthy thing. Jason Meyer says this. He says, pride is our greatest enemy because it makes God our enemy. An almighty opponent, he quotes James and Peter, God opposes the proud. Why? What makes pride so singularly repulsive to God is the way pride contends for supremacy with God himself. Pride is not one sin among many, but a sin in a class by itself. Other sins lead the sinner further from God, but pride is particularly heinous in that it attempts to elevate the sinner above God. I want to be in control. I want to be in charge. I want to call the shots. I want to be the one that does that. And he says when that happens, that God opposes that. Now listen, it's difficult to move forward on God's mission if God is opposing. Now, now God probably not only harms our vertical relationship with God, but our horizontal relationship with others because pride is uniquely isolating. What he says, don't be haughty. Okay, Old Testament language for that is don't, don't, don't lift up your eyes. The idea there, haughtiness, means I don't notice other people. I'm self-absorbed. I'm, I'm self-centered. I'm always jockeying to be in the front of the show, be in the front of the picture. And it says in Proverbs, it says the Lord hates, the Lord hates haughty eyes. He hates it. He comes against it. Then he says, don't be wise in your own eyes. That's the idea of self-sufficiency. Hey, I don't really need anybody else. I got this figured out. I got this handled. I don't need anybody else to tell me or help me understand what's good or right or true. I got it. No problem. Now, sometimes when we say about prideful people, we say they're full of themselves, which means there's no room for anyone or anything else, including God. My grandmother used to say, anything wrapped up just in yourself makes an awfully small package. <laughs> pulls us together. Now think, if God opposes this and God hates the pride, then it makes sense of what it says in Proverbs 16, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's not a good thing. So nothing good comes from adding pride. It's like, like making something with milk and you pour the milk in, but the milk is, is curdled and sour or you're mixing in flour and the flour has those little worms in it that are just crawling over everywhere while you're trying to make the thing. There's not an ingredient God wants as a part of his mission, a part of his people. So he says, instead, embrace humility. Now, he's already talked about this back in chapter 12, verse 3. He says, here's what I want you to do. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has given. So stop for a second. Think about yourself differently, in a different way. So humility is also a disposition of the heart. But humility now elevates God and minimizes self. Let's be careful. Again, we don't want to psychologize this too much. It's not about groveling. 
This is not about having to have this constant running mantra of self-put-downs. It's not about fake modesty. It's not about a lack of confidence or shadowing your gifts. It is seeing something so much larger that it naturally makes you see yourself as smaller. It's what can happen tomorrow afternoon prayerfully on a bunch of lives between about, about noon and 1.30. When you begin to watch this eclipse, people begin to see and look at that, and people are going to understand, oh my goodness, the universe is a lot bigger and more mysterious than I thought it was. Look at how here, I, I see this massive marvel in the skies, and I feel so small next to that. This is what humility does. Humility sees something so much larger that I feel smaller, and it changes my story on the other side. Now, what is the large thing in humility? Humility shows up in hearts that are overwhelmed by the largeness of the mercy of Jesus. Now remember where this chapter began. Go back to chapter, chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I, I'm appealing to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Therefore, I'm appealing to you by the mercies of God. And what he's saying is, everything I'm going to say from now on, is based on everything I've already said in chapters 1 through 11. Now, if I go back to chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, here's what it says about us. Everybody here created to know God and live for his glory, but everybody here, a sinner that's run away from God's love, exchanged God's truth for some chief substitute, broken God's laws, guilty of rebellion, no appeal. This is the story of us. This is our resume. It's not good. There's no recommendation there. Nothing good can come of that. But at the same time, as that's true, there's another story going on, and I want you to see this. See what story he's been telling all the way along. Remember, he says, in view of God's mercies. What are they? Back to chapter 1 of Romans. The gospel is the power of God's for salvation to everyone who believes. And in this good news, here it is. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, still rebels, still running away, Christ died for us. When he died for us, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more shall we be saved or rescued by his life, by his resurrection life? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. And if that's true, it means we're forgiven, so there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not only that, we didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We are children of God. Someone here needs to hear that because we've already said that twice today. You need to hear what God's saying there. And if children, then heirs, what do we get for heirs? He did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all. Will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And he says that anybody can have this for themselves if they would trust him. It's in security. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he opens wide the door. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now listen, this is our story. 
He says, our story is that, that, that God's power has come on us for salvation, that Christ, God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us, that, that he reconciled us to God and, and, and he took away our sin and gave us eternal life and, and took away all our condemnation. And he made us his children and, and he said that nothing could separate us from him and that we would know him. And all of that, he said, it's all mercy. Every bit of it is mercy. So you get to the last part of, 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 uh, of Romans 11, right before we get to this, and he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how uh, unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Listen, it's all mercy. Everything we have is mercy. Every breath you and I take, yeah, that one, it's a mercy of God. Every impulse toward God, it's a mercy. I couldn't save me. You couldn't save you. God had to. We'd still be, still be lost, not because we're worthy, because of our unworthiness. We don't deserve it or earn it. Look what it says in Titus. He says, look, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It's all a mercy that he has given. It's larger than we ever dreamed because he knows all my past. He knows all your past. And in mercy, he's redeeming that for his purposes. He sees all the mess inside of me that's not done yet with Jesus. He sees all yours. And he, what that means is I can be honest now about my brokenness and my limitations and my uncompleted parts and my, my fears. And it means you and I don't have to hide behind an altogether mask because he knows how messed up we are. He says, I'll help you live it out and I'll give you power and forgiveness and I'll help you because every morning when you wake up, there's gonna be new mercies for you for that day. This is our life. This is what he's given. Now, here's what I want you to see. If we see the largeness of God's mercy toward us, if we see that and grab a hold of that, it begins to humble us because we have received that and we'll never, ever get over it. We never get over this mercy. And then it spills over, right? It spills over. He says, okay, then associate with the lowly. Let that spill over into other lives. Now, what comes to mind when you think of lowly? I think of those who are economically poor, those who have been kind of punched by the world and they're in trouble. And yeah, there's all that and we're certainly commanded to be involved, but just as easily be those for whom you serve and connect with them and it gets you nothing in return. Children, teenagers who are still figuring out who they are, college students who've got so many needs in so many places and trying to make it, widows and widowers and Baby Christians know nothing about the Bible, spiritually struggling people, people who are outside of faith altogether in, in Christ and don't know that. What do I do? I give away the mercy I've received. What this means, nobody's too broken. No situation's too messy. 
Because if I'm humbled by the mercy I've received, what that means is I don't have to come to you with a cape on that says, I'll fix it all. And I want you to see how wonderfully spiritually wise and kind I am. What am I doing? I'm just bringing my bucket of mercy. (laughs) I'm just bringing Jesus into where we are. You remember the story Jesus told of of the Good Samaritan? There's a guy going on the Jericho Road, and he's jumped, and he's stripped, and robbed, and beaten, and left for dead. Religious guys come, and they pass by on the other side, because they're just too spiritual to get involved with this mess. Too much spirituality, and they, they pass by. they got to protect their reputation. But the Samaritan, Jesus said, the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds and poured oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. And then Jesus said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Listen, so we're, we're walking through life together as a faith family. As we're walking through where you live and work and learn and play, we're walking down a a broken road, and we see the lowly. If we're coming there humble, listen how this changes things. If I don't have to impress you with how spiritual and all together I am, I can just be your friend. I don't have to have an agenda. I can just, we can just do life together as we try to follow Jesus because we both know how much we need him. If I'm humbled, I don't have to have my opinion heard because I can listen well and know your heart. If I'm humbled, I I don't put myself on a pedestal. I can get off my high horse and get down and serve in the most hidden ways, and nobody ever has to know how I got involved. If I'm humbled by his mercy, I'm not jockeying for position with you. I can put you first. I can help you with your needs. If I'm humbled, I don't have to have all the answers. It's okay for me to say, I don't know. I don't see it. And know what that does? That makes me pray more desperately. And pray with more faith. Do you see how heart humbled by this large mercy of Jesus makes us hopeful and helpful people? Because there's this web of relationships. When that goes on like that in a church back and forth here with people that we know in our community, it's a life unlike anything else on the planet. So here's the deal. Jesus is making a church to live on his mission in the world. He's given us his main ingredients. There's gospel truth. There's a missional impulse. Make disciples. Be my witnesses. Go in Holy Spirit power where you probably can't do it on your own and do it together as a family. But then there's these these spices of affection and honor and humility that bring out the flavors of the gospel, make it deeper and richer. And when we live that, when we live that humble, hopeful, Helpful, you know what we can say to the world? We can say, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste this. You gotta taste this. It's a thing of beauty. And when we say to the world with integrity, taste and see the Lord is good. Listen, that's all we've got to serve. But it's the best thing we could ever ever give. Would you stand with me, please?